you for listening to Sozo Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information on Sozo Church, visit sozospokane.com. Sozo Church. Good morning, Sozo. How's everybody doing this morning? Awesome. Pray you're doing well. Uh, my name is Mark. Uh, my wife and I serve as the lead pastors here at Sozo. Thank you guys so much for coming and hanging out with us. It's much less awkward when there are people here. Um, now, so uh, we, we are we are in the midst of a series. You can probably guess through John. Uh, probably guess from that video. Uh, we've been here for a while. We've been camping out in John chapter 12 and. Um, and uh, I hope it's been a blessing to you. It's been a blessing to me personally, my own life, my own devotional walk with the Lord. It's been great. Um, this morning, I, I do want to remain in John and then also go somewhere else as well. Um, Paul writes to us and tells us in Romans, let me skip over to this real fast. Uh, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, uh, that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And, and I, I, this verse was on my heart this week because specifically uh, last week, you know, we sort of ended with this uh, invitation, this, I use the word permission uh, for, for those who would take hold of it and would, 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 would own it, permission to make the pursuit of intimacy with the Lord the singular focus of your life. Uh, and, and, and I'll be honest, I got feedback from a lot of you that uh, it seemed like that was a word for, for several, of, several of you uh, I believe it's a word for our church that really, uh, and, and if you were here at Vision Night, you know I, I said this, uh, but for those of you who weren't, uh, shame on you. Um, <laughs> no, really, y'all missed out. Really, that would just meant there was more food for me. And, uh, <laughs> but, but I mentioned this at Vision Night where, where the reality of, of leading, of pastoring, of shepherding a, a church is sort of interesting because uh, I can get up here and say all kinds of stuff about who we are, or what we're like, or where we're going. But if we as individuals don't go anywhere, then we as a church don't go anywhere. Or like, like you have to own what the Lord's doing in your own heart and in your own life, or else it's not happening in the church. Um, and, and so, so, so I, I want to just sort of press this a little bit and say, I believe that the word that I shared last week, permission for, for you to make pursuit of his presence, or what, what I like to call proximity, the singular focus of your life, here's what I want to say. I believe that's actually a word for us as a church, where we need to make, as a corporate body, the, the, the pursuit of proximity, the, the prioritization of his presence, the singular focus of our church. And, and so I believe that's something that we are called to do collectively and, and that, that, that we are called to do as a, a corporate body and that as we do it individually, come on, we do it as a church. Amen? So as I was sort of praying over this this week and, and, and sort of meditating on what that would look like, I, I, I had an objection pop into my head. Has anybody ever had that before? They say in psychology that you are allowed to ask yourself questions and you're even allowed to answer your own questions, but you should worry when you start arguing with yourself about your own answers, uh, which is probably just another reason why I should find a shrink. And, um, <laughs> and I started to, to, to have this argument, this objection, and tell me if you've maybe walked down this path before. If intimacy is really the key, if prioritizing proximity, if, if, if making the singular pursuit of my life his presence is really the key that unlocks everything, then why are there still, come on, sin cycles in my life? Why, why does it seem that even in a week, come on, where I'm saying like, I'm going hard after Jesus, I still respond in ways, react in ways, return to behaviors that are outside that pursuit. If Jesus is the answer, then why do I keep, keep struggling? I, I've shared this before. I'll share it again. And, and those of you who are going to be offended by this, uh, keep it to yourself. <laughs> the 
single worst movie experience of my life, and I saw Dude, Where's My Car in the theater. The single most uh, miserable experience of my life in a movie theater happened, and I went to a movie theater that didn't have air conditioning once, so that should tell you something. Uh, The single worst cinematic experience of my life was seeing Transformers. It was like somebody took my childhood, took it behind a woodshed and just beat the living daylights of it and charged me $12.50 to watch it. And, uh, but there was one moment in that movie that, that, that has stuck with me. And it was this. It was, it was when a girl actress who I don't know her name and a boy actress who I don't know his name were riding in a car, Bumblebee. I know it's a name because I owned Bumblebee. They were riding in Bumblebee and, and, and they were riding around. And, and at this point, Bumblebee was a, was a beat up old car. I don't know what kind of car it is because I don't care. And uh, he's supposed to be a beetle. That's why he's Bumblebee. But in the movie, they changed it because, again, beating my childhood. And, uh, and, 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 and he's this beat up old car. And she says something to, to the, the, the girl actress says something to the boy actor. She says, if this car is really some futuristic outer space robot, then why does he keep turning back into a piece of junk car? And I feel like that is the question that Christians need to be asking about the way we believe the gospel. Worst cinematic movie experience of my life. You can, this is proof, come on, that no matter how bad the season is, God will speak to you. <laughs> so this is, this is the problem. We make these declarations about who we are in Christ. We read in the scriptures about how, come on, do you realize that you are not a wretched sinner saved by grace? The Bible tells you that if you've repented and believed the gospel, you are actually, factually, in reality, the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Then how come you keep turning back into a busted down, broken down car? So that's, that's what I want to I wanna dive into because here's, I'm just going to put, I'm going to put this card on the table right now. You, this, you can be offended at and we can talk because I would love to convince you of the truth. So this, this, is, this is the reality. The scriptures do not call us to be holy and the Holy Spirit not give us the supernatural ability to walk in holiness. So if you believe, if you buy into a theology that says, well, I'm just always going to suck at life and continue to fall into sin cycles until I get to go to heaven, then you don't believe Jesus saves you. You believe death saves you. But Jesus says he is the one who comes to give freedom. And so I want to talk to us about how is it that we engage with, how is it that we experience that freedom? Because, because listen to me, maybe you've had the same experience I've had where we worship like we worshiped just a, a few minutes ago, right? Where like you, you could almost push through the veil and get into heaven. And yet before you get to your car, Beliefs and behaviors will try to rise up in your life and rob you of that experience. Amen? But I believe we're called to live in continually that experience. So I want to I I read John, but then I want to take us, to, you know, rewind, kind of go back into the Old Testament and see a, an account of, of the presence of God and how it affected the people that it got around. Can we do that together? So we're going to be in John. So I'm, I'm cheating and saying we're still in John, but we're really going to be studying uh, the Old Testament. We're going to be studying First and Second Samuel. So, so if you got your Bibles, let's go ahead and go to John chapter twelve, verses one through fifteen. We're going to read a little bit more than we have in the past. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet for the reading of a whole bunch of God's Word. Who's excited to read a bunch of the Bible? Yeah. Who's excited to get to read the New Testament? Yeah. Who's excited to get to read the Old Testament? Oh, yeah. All right. Um, I'm I'm going to do my best to talk really fast because I've got about four series worth of messages in this one message. And, uh, and it's okay, though, because Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday, so you can't go there for lunch. Anyways, so um, that's the only place Christians go out to eat now, right? That's what I heard. Everyone in line there is a Christian, and that's why it takes two hours for me to get... Never mind. Okay, John chapter 12, verse 1. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, Mary ser- or Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bags, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Verse 9. 
Then the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there. They came not, on, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, if you've still got your Bibles, go ahead and go rewind Old Testament. Let's go to 1 Samuel. We're going to start in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. It's really easy to find 1 Samuel. It's the book right before 2 Samuel. Sam's favorite book. Shocker. He gets two. I only got one. God loves him more. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. And the, word of the, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Ephok. The Philistines drew up lines against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from um, Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So that people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And soon, as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. Things are going in the right direction, huh? For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us who can who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage, O men. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. Let's pray together this morning. Holy Spirit, we come before you this morning. Hungry to hear your word. We come before you hungry to feast on the bread that is your word to us. God, we ask that your hand would be upon this time to open up our ears, to soften our hearts, that we might hear, that we might receive, that we might, that we might allow your word deep within to the core of who we are. God, that it might find soil in our heart free from debris, free from, from other things growing in it. God, we give you, we give you permission. We, we make request of you to uproot and tear out anything that would try to choke out your word being planted in our hearts and in our lives today. Let it bear fruit. Let it be productive in our life. Let us be transformed as doers of your word, not just hearers. That cities might be made free from the fear that holds them in bondage. As your sons are revealed in the earth. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. Go ahead and greet somebody around you and grab a seat.
this account, I think, demonstrates um, quite clearly, if, if, you, if we look at it, there's a quite simple parallel between the way that we respond, the way that we react, and the way that the Israelites did. Where we experience defeat, and we try to respond in religion. And, and so if you're taking notes this morning, and I hope you are, I want to talk to you under the title, The Particulars of Proximity, How Presence Changes Everything. How Presence Changes Everything. Uh, quick, very quick, I don't want to spend a lot of time in this, but I have to touch on a few things as we walk through this text just so we understand sort of the historical context. At this point in the history of the nation of Israel, there were no uh, ruling authority of kings in the land. Uh, what ruled over the people were prophets, people anointed by God to declare his word and to bring uh, uh, safety, security, deliverance, proclamation of the Lord. Uh, and that's, that's what the book is named after, this guy named Samuel. And we start off this uh, passage by saying this, this prophetic authority had been established in the land. That's important to understand. There was prophetic authority in the land at this time. And, 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 uh, and so they, they go out to battle against the Philistines. If, if you've read the Old Testament at all or you hung around at uh, you know, uh, Sunday school as a kid, you probably know that in the Old Testament, for the most part, you can sort of pit the, the Israelites uh, against, or the Hebrews against the Philistines. And so we've got these two kind of continually, consistently warring clans. I don't have time to get into sort of the, the, the reality of why the Philistines were there and who they were. We, we don't have time for that today. But I but, uh, just want us to understand that this was a continual, constant struggle in the life of Israel. And, and, and so they, they, they're defeated and they go and they, they grab the Ark of the Covenant. I, I've grabbed a few uh, renderings. We don't have the Ark of the Covenant anymore. It's been lost to history, uh, I think for good reason, but we can talk about that later. Um, but this was the physical representation of God's presence in the earth. God had commanded Moses uh, to make this. It was made specifically after the pattern that God had called him to make. This is another uh, uh, artist's rendering of it. Again, we don't know exactly what it looked like, but these sort of look at the biblical context and, uh, and, and, and sort of artistically represent it. Uh, and uh, God would, the Bible said, would, would rest between the wings of the angels that were carved on top of the... Uh, of the ark. If, if you grew up in the 80s, you know what this is. This is from uh, not the worst cinematic experience I ever had. This is from Indiana Jones. This is the one that, that Hollywood made. So even Hollywood likes the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, so, so this is sort of a, a, a general representation that gives you an idea of, of what the Ark sort of looked like, what we're talking about here. But remember, this is a physical representation of God's presence with God's people. And so we have this, we have, we have the, the nation of Israel uh, going and getting this, but when they go out to battle, the first thing we see is that they are defeated. There's defeat. Why were they defeated? Why do we fail? Why? Why? Come on. When we say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pursue Jesus, I'm going to fight the good fight of faith, whatever term you want to use, I'm going to walk in holiness, I'm going to walk in discipline, I'm going to pr prioritize my proximity and his presence in my life. Why is it that we continue to fail? Well, look what happens here. This is, this is so perfect, in my opinion, a picture of what we do. We, we, we go out and, and we, we fight. There's prophetic ability. There's an ability to hear the word of the Lord in our lives as believers. We don't listen to that. Listen to me. We don't pursue that. We don't seek that. No one asks Samuel, hey, should we go fight this battle or not? They just said, well, this is what we do, so this is what we're going to do. And they go out and they try to fight a battle. They lose. And then this is what they do. They try to add a side of Jesus. Come on, they had, they had, you see the, the ark comes into camp. They said, hey, let's go get that ark thing. Let's bring it into our battle. And then God, the, they don't say God, they actually say it will deliver us. They have, come on, can I get an amen from some church kids? They have youth camp worship. Yeah. Right, like the, the Bible, did you catch it? Literally says the ground shook because of how crazy they worshiped. They got so emotionally engaged that the ground shakes. And yet defeat still happens. Because rather than obeying the prophetic word of the Lord, and even in direct opposition to the written word of the Lord that said the ark was never to be used in battle, that priests were never to go out and fight, they broke all of it and tried to bring God into their fight. And this is what I want you to see. God is not interested in engaging in your external addictions while ignoring while ignoring 
the true issue of internal idolatry. You see, what they try to do is, hey, let's not deal with the fact that there is there's horrible corruption and, and pollution inside the entire nation of Israel. Realize at this time the, the priesthood was completely corrupted. These two sons of Eli that were talked about, Hophni and Phinehas, were, were horribly corrupt and doing perverted things in the house of God. Eli, the priest, was an utter absentee father refusing to father his sons. And yet they thought, hey, if we just worship loud enough, God will make us victorious. If we can just get emotionally engaged enough, then somehow that will bring about our deliverance. But the reality is that's not what's going on. See, addiction is the fruit, but idolatry is the root. And listen, God is not, God is not interested in just lopping off the top of the weeds in your life. When I was a kid, anybody, anybody else's parents make them pull weeds in the garden? Dad used to make us pull weeds in the garden. We figured out something, me and my brothers. We figured out something really, 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 really important to us. That you could get done pulling the weeds in the garden in about a third of the time if you just rip all the leaves off of all the weeds and shove the bark back over them. My dad was so impressed the first time we came back. And dad, I know you told us it was a couple of hours, but 30 minutes, we're done. Two days later, all the weeds are back. God's not interested. Come on, we want God to just, just lop off the leaves. Just make, well, come on, just make me look like I don't have addiction in my life. But don't actually do any uprooting that's going to hurt and disrupt and, and cause any sort of discomfort in my life. And God is not interested. He won't engage, come on, with external addiction while ignoring internal idolatry. And so what we see is Israel is defeated. It's like, it's, like, it's like they have an internal cancer and they're wondering why rubbing lotion on top of it isn't fixing the problem. God wants to go deep. God wants to deal with the issue. And what we see is what happens when God actually deals with the issue. We're going to keep trucking along in, in 1 Samuel. You don't have to stand up. Let's just, let's just go there. If you've still got your Bibles open, just, just track forward to verse 5. Remember the Philistines, right? They captured the ark. Remember that? That's where our story ends. Philistines capturing the ark. What do they do with the ark? When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Everybody say Dagon. It's just a fun word to say. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back up in his place. And when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were laying cut off on the threshing floor. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshing floor of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So let's look at this here for a minute. Let's, 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 let's try to take a, take a quick look. Dagon, real fast, uh, I love this. This was their God. He was a merman. <laughs> I love that. Um, uh, there, are, there are creepier pictures of Dagon that you can find, but... There are children watching, so, uh, uh, and, and this one I think is more fitting. Um, so, so this is Dagon, this is, this is their God. What I want to talk to you right now is, if, if that's how we fail, if, if, if just trying, if we're defeated because we just try to add God externally to an internal problem, well, I want to look now at how we deal with that internal problem. How do the idols in our life fall? And I want to say they fall by way of displacement. They fall by way of displacement. Now, you've got to understand something about Dagon. Dagon was the chief god of all the Philistines, which meant in their, in their pantheonistic view of God, he was the father of all their lesser gods. So D Dagon really was the god who provided all things for them. Every area of life that, that a nomadic tribe of people like the Philistines would need, they believed that, that Dagon provided that for them. We've talked about this a lot here in this church, so I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But essentially, let me, let me parallel it with what we've been talking about a lot. They looked to Dagon to fulfill their identity, security, and felicity. 
They looked to Dagon to make them right before him. They looked to Dagon to provide for them. They looked to Dagon to make their lives filled with joy, prosperity, peace, purpose, come on, power, all of these things. They looked to Dagon for all that. He was, come on, just like so many of us, the idol that they looked to, that they worshiped. And the thing I always want to share when I talk about idols is, is two things. First off, I believe America has a larger problem with idols than India does. Because we think an idol is only like a, a carved statue that we bow down and worship, when in reality the scriptures make it very clear that an idol is anything we love, like, or trust more than we love, like, or trust Jesus. So all these things that we look to, anywhere that we look to to find peace, anywhere that we look to to find security, anywhere that we look to to find joy, all of those things are idols. Dagon was their idol. He was the one they looked to for this. The second thing I always want to tell us when we talk about idols is this. One of the, 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 the primary issue why idols are a problem is because they seek to replace God. Right? That's, that's easy. But, but the, the secondary reason why they're a problem is this. When an idol fails or you fail the idol, regardless, you pay the price. See, one of the primary differences between, between Yahweh, the God of the scriptures, and every other God is this. Every other God says you pay the price. And, and Yahweh, our God, Jesus, come on, said, I'll pay the price. When you fail him, he paid the price. He never fails you, so that's not an issue. Yeah. Right. Idolatry says that the, the, the price always falls on you. You work really hard at the job and you don't get the promotion, it was your fault. You work really hard, you get the promotion, the company fails, that's still your fault. And, 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 and so they're, they're worshiping this idol and look what happens Unlike the Israelites who, who tried to add God to the external, they welcomed the presence of God, look at this, into the central piece of their city. If you understood the way that, that, that the, the cultures worked at this day, the temple, the, uh, the, the place of worship was literally at the center of the city. It was the stronghold. It was, it was the, 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 the place where everything revolved around the place of worship. They understood something that many of us in our modern day have forgotten. The thing that you worship becomes the center of your entire life. And they welcome foolishly the presence of God right into the center of their hearts, right into the center of their lives. I, I don't have time for this, but I, I want just, I, just, I to I just do this because I think there's... Another level. So, so on one level, I want to say God displaces, come on, where we look to for, for, for our identity, our security, and our felicity. Right? Like he, he topples the idols. Amen? As we, as we allow the presence of God into, come on, not just the external addiction, but into the internal world of our life, into the internal world of our secret affections. He begins to displace, come on, in his goodness, in his graciousness, he begins to topple the idols in our lives, the, the other places that we go looking for all of the things that make our life have meaning and have security and have purpose. But I can't help see one more little parallel here with Dagon. He's a mixture. He, he's, a, he's, he's, he's not pure. And he's a mixture of two things that, that, that please hear me, I'm, I'm stretching here, but, but just give me a little bit of stretch and I promise you it'll be worth it. Two things that he's made up of. A fish and a man. A man and a fish. He's half human, merely human. And he's half the universal symbol for Christian. And I can't help but wonder if this little picture was hidden in the Old Testament. This little symbolism was, was, was just snuck in there subtly to say that yes, God wants to displace, hear me please, God wants to displace the, the search for idolatrous fulfillment, but that he's also after the hybrid heart as well. Where we, where we, we try to be in two worlds at the same time. We try to be amphibious. We try to be able to live in his presence when that's uh, 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 pleasurable. Come on. But when it's not, and there seems to be good hidden in places that he said there is bad, we want to remain capable of living in that environment as well. And so we hide a little 
idol in our heart that says we can be his sons on in one moment. Come on. And in other moments, we can still behave another way. And we've even, I love you, we've even built theologies around this. Where we say, well, I have two natures. I have my, my, my saved nature and I have my sinner nature. Not if you've actually been born again. You Listen to me. You can't find that theology in the Bible. You can only be taught that by people I love. I, do you still have it back there? Mark at sozospokane.org. You can email me if you want. We can go out to coffee. We can actually do that now. Actually go out to coffee now. Uh, praise Jesus. Um, we build these theologies. I'm going to say what I need to say. These theologies were built by people who refused to do the difficult work of allowing intimacy in the interior world to displace the idols in their life. So we make excuses of the, and, and we build theologies to back up our excuses as to why I'm still struggling in sin. When the reality is, it's just easier, cheaper, and more culturally accepted to just deal with external addiction than to do the uncomfortable, costly, uh, possibly life-ruining work of saying, he can have whatever place in my life he wants. And he can disrupt any uh, affection that I have. He's allowed to grab it, pull it out, and it will be gone. He can topple the idols in my life. I no longer will seek to exist. Come on, as a, as a merman. <laughs> I just want to be a son of God. That's the, only, uh, that's the only identity that I'm going to relate to. We want to fit in with two families, but the reality is that can't happen. Because when the throne of God, which literally the ark was, do you catch that? Bible says that he was enthroned between the cherubim. The throne of God. When the throne of God, the ruling, the reigning, the authority of the, of the presence of God enters into the secret place of our interior world, he shatters internal idolatry and confronts and displaces the hybrid heart. Doesn't happen, listen to me, through shouting and singing when the presence comes into the camp. It happens when all that's done when all of that is over and in the secret place where no one is around and no, no one, oh, I love this, no one knows and no one gets to know. When he sneaks in there, that's when idols start to fall over. That's when things start to get displaced. Notice, notice what happens, his head and his hands, the thinking and the doing are done away with. Thinking changes, doing changes. It's displaced. We've said it like this for years. Let's keep saying it. Your problem is not your problem. Your proximity is your problem. All of the addictions in your life. I'm making a bold statement. I'm fully aware how bold the statement is. Every addiction in your life is a proximity problem. They're all just cheap Solutions are just cheap substitutions for him. Your problem is not that you're single. Your problem is that you're not satisfied in him. Your problem is not that your spouse doesn't do what you want them to do. Your problem is you are not satisfied in him. Your problem is not that you need more money, you need more stuff, you need less debt. You, th those are not the ultimate reality of your problem. We could fix all of those problems today and you would still, if he is not the center of your life, you would simply substitute something else. Prove it, preacher. I, I, okay, those of you who've gone through recovery, you, you, I'm, you're, you're my people, okay? I've been there, I've done that. I have my two-year coin. I should probably give it to somebody because I drink beer now. But I have my two-year coin, Okay. I'm not knocking recovery. I would much rather you be, be sober than, than, than a drunk. But you can be a sober and still go straight to hell. And I can prove to you that, that recovery doesn't work as well as we want to make it sound like it does. Because listen to me, you want to you you see how free from addiction people in recovery are? Take away the coffee at the back of the room. So like, I don't need alcohol anymore. I don't need heroin anymore. But you take away my coffee, I will gut you like a fish. <laughs> I 
I don't want, listen, I don't want to just have really, really, really solid behavior modification in my life. Listen, listen, what I needed when I came to Jesus was for the me that I'd lived with for my entire life to die because I was sick of living with him. And what I needed was a new me to be born. And that's what Jesus promises in John 3, that we can be born again, that the problem goes all the way back to your birth. But that the solution comes in the same way. You are born again. Not this time of of water and flesh, but this time of water and spirit. And we're born again. The picture that's that's used there, we talked about this, but the picture that's used there is literally a, a, a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. This is why I say you cannot have two natures. You're not good enough for two natures. You have one nature. If you've, been, if you've repented and you've believed the gospel, the Bible tells me this, that you have been transformed from a caterpillar into a butterfly. You can argue with me all you want, but you're not arguing with me, you're arguing with the scripture. You say, but my experience, what are you going to believe? And I say it this way, a butterfly's ability to walk does not diminish or deny its capacity to fly. What I'm telling you is this, stop walking and start flying. Who who would walk when you could fly? Who would live still engaging with the world around you on the same level you used to when you are now capable supernaturally of engaging with the world on the level that it actually exists? He displaces, come on, the idols in our heart and the hybrid nature in our own identity. So cool. Cool. I just need to prioritize the presence of God and everything will be great. My life will just be awesome. Just let him in the interior part of my life. Just like, yeah, cool. Done, right? Not so fast. The story of the ark doesn't end here. Now, I don't have time to go into all of the, all of the plagues and pestilences that happened to the, the, the people of Philistine. When, and they, they try to get rid of the ark. They set it to the edge of uh, and try to get rid of it. We don't have time to go there. But we do have time to fast forward to 2 Samuel. See, I got to both of your books. 2 Samuel chapter 6. I told you we're going to read some Bible today. And y'all act like you're excited. So don't get mad at me now that we're doing it. So 2 Samuel chapter 6. Let's pick up the story of the ark. 2 Samuel chapter 6 verses, let's go 1 through 10. Says David again. Now, now, now we're fast forwarding, right? So we're out of the time of, of the people of God, where they were they were ruled by prophets, and now uh, the kings have stepped in and were, were to David's uh, reigning in Israel. So they, there is a king in the land. Okay, so just historically tracking us through, uh, this will be good. David, who is the king, again gathered all of the children of Israel. Thirty. Uh, I'm in the wrong. I'm in the wrong place. Let's go to chapter five. Let's go to verse five. Let's just jump down to verse five. I don't have time to go through all that. Um, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating. Where do I want to go? I've got too much. I've got too much to cover this morning. Jesus, help me. Okay, yeah, let's just go to five. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and and a whole bunch of other stuff. Verse six, and when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah, check this, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God. Now David's bringing in the ark of God. He's carrying it on on a cart, which is not the way you're supposed to carry it. And he's bringing it up. And Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there before, because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place was called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. So the ark is now recovered from the Philistines, and David wants to bring it in, come on, to the center of his life, right? To the center of his city. He wants to do the right thing and bring it in there. But something happens. See, see, see I, want, I want to give a warning and I want to show you the blessing of the presence of God. Very quickly here. The warning is this, death. This is, this is a warning against a cheap 
or flippant approach to the presence of God. If you still think, well, I'll just, I'll just add a side of Jesus in my heart instead of on the outside. It's not going to produce any life in you. In fact, listen, listen to me, it will produce death in you. If we have a flippant or a cheap approach to the presence of God in our life, we will find the, the fruit that it bears in our hearts, the fruit that it bears in our life is nothing but only death. Notice David had perfect intentions, did he not? He wants to bring the ark of God into the, into the, the, the city of David, into the city of the people of God. Side note, don't have time to preach it, but just be careful of you, of you uh, uh, just thinking that just because you have good intentions that everything's going to work out fine. Uzzah had good intentions. Listen, there's a, there's a, there's a word that was used in this passage that I want to I highlight. It said that David was afraid of the Lord. We should, I want to say two things at the same time, and I need you to hear them because I don't have time to explain them. We should never be afraid of the Lord. We should always walk in the fear of the Lord. Not afraid of God, but walk in the fear of the Lord. Uzzah did not have the fear of the Lord. Here's what Uzzah thought. The ark is slipping. God needs my help. Hello. The ark's falling. The, the power and the presence of God himself, the throne of God is about to slip. I better reach out and grab a hold of it. Again, against the rules. He's not walking in obedience. Now, let me explain obedience for a second because here's what I need you to hear. God does not need your help. Your obedience to what God, when, when God is being enthroned in your heart, amen, and he begins to displace things, what that often looks like, this is, this is where this gets real boring, is he begins to command things of you. He begins to give you patterns around which you should build your life. He begins to say things like he said to me. I, I, I've shared this before. I was, a, I was an intravenous drug user before Jesus. That addiction was broken the moment I stepped into faith. Supernaturally, miracle. Wish I had time to share more about it. Don't. But I, I smoked two packs of non-filtered cigarettes a day for almost two years after coming to faith. So heroin, that was fine. But, but, but my, my, my little, little butt buddy, that was, that was, you know, that was my, little, my little addiction that kept hanging around. And, and so, so to tell the day, I remember the day I was walking down the road. I love this. Talking to the Lord. And, and, and I'm smoking a cigarette, my probably 27th of the day. And here's all the Lord said. I hate that. I hate that. See, that's what, that's what, that's what God's stepping into your life and taking, taking his throne in your heart starts to look like. I hate that. What are you going to do about it? And here's what I need us to understand. When you misunderstand and you think obedience is you helping God, you miss the whole point. Obedience is not about you helping God. Obedience is about you surrendering to God. My people perish for a lack of knowledge. If you approach your heart's all right. Your, your attitude's all right. I want to honor God. But if, you're, if, you're, if your belief is that you're somehow aiding God and bringing freedom into your life, hello, somebody. It's not going to bring freedom. Listen, listen. It's religion and it brings death. And so now I'm bound up. Come on. I'm bound up in all this stuff I can't do. And all this stuff I need to do. And my heart races all the time because I'm so worried because I have a list, list that God has told me. And despite the fact that the idea is that he gives me a new heart, I've simply taken everything that he's given me and just made a new external law with it. And the new covenant makes it clear. The old covenant, the external law, only brings death. So Uzzah thinks he's being helpful to God. And what happens to Uzzah? He dies. So I should just be afraid of God all the time. <laughs> no. I should walk in the fear of the Lord. Come on, I should walk in the fear of the Lord. Let's keep reading. Verse 10. Read verse 10 again. 
So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom. Everybody say Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom. I love Obed-Edom. The Gittite was there for how long? Come on, is there for how long? Three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And all his household. Devotion. So I, I told you I wanted to talk to you about the warning, and I want to talk to you about the blessing. Obed-Edom, can you, can, we, can you please, just for like a, a nanosecond, take this story off the flannel graph in your mind? And let's just put this right in your own life. You be Obed-Edom for a while. Here's what happens. Probably some servants of David come and knock. Hey, Obed, um, you got a big house, right? Not really. I'm pretty poor. Okay, but but you got you got you're close. So um, we got this. We got the ark, the ark of the covenant. You know the ark of the covenant. You mean the 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 death box that just killed o, the the Uzzah? Yeah, yeah, that one. Um, we're gonna leave it in your house. <laughs> you're gonna leave it. I don't have a garage. Oh, we know. It's cool. We'll just um, it could just be like your coffee table. Um, maybe you could tell David. I got eight sons, eight little boys running around. I can't keep track of them on a good day. And you want to bring a box that if anybody bumps their toe on it in the middle of the night while trying to get some milk, they're going to die? Yeah, cool. Say, we'll see you later. And they just ditch the Ark of the Covenant in Obed-Edom's house. I'm just going to go out on a wild limb here and say, Obed couldn't probably, I don't know, like tend his fields the same way he used to. Literally, if you track the, if you track the story, Obed even had eight sons, eight of them. My great-grandma had a saying, one boy is a whole boy, two boy is half a boy, and three boys is no boy at all. And anybody with multiple sons knows exactly what she was talking about. He had eight of them. Running around the house. Everything in Obed-Edom's life had to shift when the ark came into his life. Everything in the heart of Obed, every way they did life, every way they did everything had to shift. They would have had to change everything because literally their house, the moment the ark of the covenant steps into their house, their house becomes the holy of holies. Do you realize that the moment, come on, the presence of God took up resident in your heart, you became the holy of holies. And yet do we, come on, do we let that dictate how we live our lives? Do we let that all, all of a sudden shift? Come on. The conversations we have, the attitudes we have, the behaviors that take place. I, I bet you they changed the movies they watched when the ark sat in their living room. My other great-grandma used to ask this to me all the time. She'd see me watching TV in grandma's house. She'd come over to visit and she would say, sweetie, would you watch that if Jesus was in the room? The answer was always no. Everything shifts in Obed's life. But listen, the blessing, come on, that comes to Obed's life. The favor that rests upon Obed. So blessed, we're going to read here in just a second. So blessed that the king gets jealous of the life that Obed lives. That's literally where we're about to go there. He literally gets jealous. David gets jealous of Obed-Edom. How would you like the favor on your life? The blessing of the Lord on your life. To be so significant. To be so profound. That kings are jealous of you. Because he let it in. Because he, he didn't keep it outside. He didn't put it in the garage. It went into his home into the central place of who he is. Verse 11. 
Verse 12. Let's go to verse, let's go to verse 12. And it was told to King David, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, catch the difference there. He, they bore the ark of the Lord. We're going to talk about this in a second, but just catch it in the text. Bore the ark of the Lord, had gone six steps. He sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. So you say, okay, that, that's great. So the, the, the presence of God is in my life. Blessing is in my life. This is awesome. So, so, so I just get to be blessed all the time. Wonderful. Well, there's a warning. Amen? There was a blessing. But I want to tell you there's a purpose to the reason why the presence is in your life. You don't just get to be the holy of holies just for the sake of you being the holy of holies. There's a purpose. There's a reason why he is deposited there. John tells us in, in 1 John that there's an anointing that abides with you. I say it this way. There's anointing that abides with you because it does not reside for you. There's a greater purpose for which God has placed his presence within you. There's a deposit. And it's our purpose is hidden in that deposit. The purpose is to make us, listen to me, priests who carry the presence. Not to just, listen, it's one thing, and I want this for everybody in the room, to experience the presence of God. It's a whole other thing to allow the presence of God to transform you and make you into a priest so that you can carry the presence of God. See, David thought at first he would put it on a cart and he would carry it on a cart, but the presence of God is never carried on stuff. It's always carried on people. If you track back again, we didn't have time to go over all this. If we track back again, if you remember the pictures of the ark, there was, there was these rods through the side of it. The only way the ark was allowed to be transported was on the shoulders of the priests. We carry the presence of God everywhere we go. So see, this is why I'm so passionate about this. Because I believe that as we prioritize presence, as we make proximity the thing that's important to us as a people, that is actually how Sozo goes into all of the city. Because we carry his presence everywhere we go. Because remember, we're not, getting, we're not trying to get people to, to pick Jesus. We're not trying to get people to pray a prayer. We're not trying to get people to get religion. We're not trying to get people to join a church. We're trying to make dead people come alive. You can't do that by memorizing four spiritual laws. The only way you can do that is by having enough life in you that it overcomes the death that's everywhere you go. David finds out you're supposed to carry the ark two ways. First, on the shoulders of the priests. We already talked about this. But I, I, want, I, want, to, I want to, the second is, well, just do this. The second is the sacrifice of praise. Shoulders of the priests, sacrifice of praise. They, every, every, they, they take six steps, they sacrifice. I live my life, come on, perpetually offering up external expressions of exaltation. It's not just an internal thing, it's an external thing, Amen. But I want to show you this. This is, this is so important to me that we see this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a, you, you, not your grandma, not you when you get all your stuff together. You are a chosen race, a royal, say it. Say it. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is the part that's so important. A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. How many, how many, how many people were raised when, when, we, when we had the good Bible, the King James Bible? How many, how many people know what that a people of, for his own possession was in the King James? Anybody want to shout it out? A peculiar people. Come on, a peculiar people. It's a horrible translation. It's very accurate of charismatic people, but a horrible translation. <laughs> What it means is that. A, what the, word, the, word, the, the Greek word here literally means a, a people belonging exclusively to somebody else. See, we're, we are a race of royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation. The 
question in our, the reason why I believe we don't experience the reality of being that chosen race, that royal priesthood and that holy nation is because we refuse to believe that he alone owns our life. We think we still belong to multiple things. We still have the hybrid heart. And David realized that the only way he could get the presence, come on, into the city was on the shoulder of priests. The only way we're going to carry the presence is when we become a peculiar people. A people belonging exclusively to him. Because listen, that's what you are. I'm not trying to make you into something new. I'm trying to convince you that you are what he says you are. And I'm fully aware that this makes religious people very uncomfortable. Can I let you on a little secret? I won't tell anybody else. Just you? I don't care. Trust me, if we were trying to grow this church with religious people, we would do stuff a lot different. We bring his presence. When he alone possesses us, and we offer him praise. We carry that presence. See, it's so important to me that you get, you get the hybrid heart thing dealt with because our purpose can't be fulfilled by just having better services or more convincing presentations of the four spiritual laws. The world is not waiting in eager expectation for the revealing of sinful people who've learned to manage their bad behavior. The world is longing to see sons of God. And you are that. I'm not talking about if you've joined the church or if you're a good person. I'm saying if you've been, if you've repented and you've believed the gospel and you've been born again, you are that right now. I believe his word more than I believe your experience. Stay to our feet. The Bible tells us this, and I want to tie this back to John. I read I read a little farther this time than I did previously. Verse 15. Chapter 12, verse 15. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey colt. There is a world held in bondage to slavery because of fear. Fear of death, Hebrews, Hebrews tells us that it's because they're afraid to die. And we bring liberation when we step into cities with the presence of God. This is why we exist, church. Listen, I, I, I love you, and I, I say it when I get up here often that it, it's more awkward when you're not here, but the truth is I, don't, I love you and, and I want you to be here, but I don't really care if you're not here. Because I didn't move to this city. I didn't, we didn't merge these churches to just get more butts in seats. It's not about nickels and noses for us. I, I, I will not waste one more minute of my life, one more micron of my energy trying to get more people in a church building. But I will, I will bleed every drop of blood in my life and run out of breath trying to see sons of God raised up in the earth. I'll give everything for that. And, I, and here's the truth. I don't care if it's two. I don't care if it's one. I'll give everything for that. Here's an interesting thought. The presence of God rests in Obed's house for three months. What, what would happen? What would happen to your life if you just said, a new month starts tomorrow? March, April, 
man. I'm going to act like there's an ark in my living room. I'm going to just, I'm going to just pretend like I believe the Bible for a hot minute and that I'm actually the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, that I am the holy of holies. And I'm going to start believing that and behaving out of that belief. And when anything creeps into my heart and creeps into my life and creeps into my experience that tries to deny that, I'm going to reject that and hold to the truth that I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. What would shift in your life in three months? Can I, can I, I didn't have time to go there, but we're in a different part of the service now, so this doesn't count. The lights went down. This doesn't count anymore. That's what I tell my wife when she says I preach too long. Like the lights were down. That's not even preaching time. That's a totally different time. I love you. Obed-Edom. I want to challenge you. Do a search. You can do this on, if you have Google, you can do this. Or DuckDuckGo if you aren't into Google. You thought I didn't know. Um... Search about Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom goes from being this guy that the ark lives in his house for three months. And when the ark leaves his house, he refuses to let the presence of God leave his life. And so we see when David sets up the tabernacle of David in in, in Jerusalem, Obed-Edom volunteers for every job in the temple. Or the tabernacle, every single job. He's a doorkeeper. He's a musician. He's a greeter. He's he works in kids ministry. He does. I mean, he does everything in the tabernacle. He does all of it because he's a, he, he's become addicted to that presence. Now, now the good news is in the new covenant, you, you don't. That's not the point. The point isn't volunteer for all this stuff. The point is he shifted his entire life. Come on, to follow the presence. Three months. What would happen? Obed-Eden became a priest because of proximity. So do you. But I feel like I would be negligent in my duties if I didn't, if I didn't just warn you about something. We ended the story for, for sake of time, but David goes dancing into the city of God. And one of his wives, don't have time to go there, one of his wives... judges him. Here's my warning. You will make more enemies than friends when proximity becomes your priority. I'm not guaranteeing that everybody in your life is just going to be just overwhelmingly thrilled with you changing your priorities. But I'm saying it's worth it. And I also want to just flip this real fast. If you're not to this point in your walk with the Lord right now, number one, you should be. But if you're not, I also want to warn you not to pick up the spirit of Michael. Because because of her judgment, she was stricken with barrenness and she never produced anything. You judging other people for their willingness to prioritize proximity is not going to bear any fruit in your life. So I'm going to close. We're going to respond. I'm going to invite you back here tonight at 6 to just worship, to just practice proximity. just want to help you live in that presence. We're going to respond. We're going to respond through communion, contemplation, celebration. Communion. We, we choose to partake in communion every single time we gather together, taking a piece of bread or gluten-free wafer, dipping it in the juice and partaking. If you're a, 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 here and you're a believer, these tables are open to you. We also do have, uh, if you would prefer in this season to take, we have a little prepackaged communion in the back. If you'd prefer to take that way, that's, that's totally up to you. We make that available to you. We also communion through praying for one another. So if you have any need in your life whatsoever, we'd love the chance to stand with you and pray with you. We believe something crazy that when we pray, God hears us. And when God hears us, he responds. So we think stuff happens when we pray. So you're welcome to make use of prayer. 
through contemplation, we let God speak to us in these moments. Through celebration, we lift our voice and we sing. Let's say this. If you're here and you would be honest with yourself and say that you do not have an abiding relationship with the Lord, I want to encourage you to make your way to, to somebody in the prayer team and let them know that and let them share the truth of the gospel with you and let them bring you to a place, come on, of encountering Jesus because we believe that's what you really need in your life. Amen, church? So Holy Spirit, thank you this, this morning. Thank you for your presence with us. Thank you that you do not leave us or forsake us. That you are here. And we come before you today and we ask that you would make your presence known in this moment. That we would shift our lives. So that your presence is the only thing that satisfies feel that slip, when we, when we feel that, 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 that pull away, we would, we would instantly, instantaneously allow you to uproot whatever it is that's twinkling and seeking to grab our attention, to steal our affection. We give it all to you, Lord, that we might be a people of your own possession, priests in the land, bringing your presence everywhere we go, seeing lives set free from the bondage, the slavery of fear. In Jesus' name, church, let's respond to the Lord.